Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson here of Peak Prosperity with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. Hey, Paul. Good, Good to morning, see you again. Good morning, Chris. Good to see wow. you again. I'm looking at my screen. We got all kinds of stuff happening this week. I really want to go into a lot of it. Um, but the two big things that I really want to cover with you so that people can understand here, this is Finance University. So let's break some stuff down. GDP came in nice and hot. Ooh, you know, smoking four point whatever, six percent or nine. I forget what it was. Something high. Right. And uh, and and then what's going on with the Japanese yen? We've talked about it before. I think Japan's in a real world of hurt here because they're trying to do two things at once and you can only do one of them. <laughs> they want they want to control the price and the quantity of money. I think they're losing control actually of both. Um, Agreed. So, we'll, yeah, we'll see what happens here. Um, so. So that's what's on my plate. What's on your plate? Markets are are you know delivering a lot of information over the past couple of weeks. You know, we we had mentioned over the past couple of months this being the danger zone. Yeah. And it's it's highly possible, you know, that we're seeing we're entering the super bubbles final act. And the market's given us a good indication of that. You know, Jeremy Grantham wrote a good article back in September the first of 2022 where where he very eloquently describes how these super bubbles come apart. You know, first the bubble forms. We've seen that through unbelievable central bank intervention over the past, since 2008. I mean, just crossing every absolute boundary that that was drawn in the sand before. Then we finally get this setback, you know, in, in first part of 2022. And, and then we get this rally. So, you know, I think we're in the final stages of that super bubble because what we're seeing is the market pulls back. Investors get a chance to buy Google after it drops 50 percent, NVIDIA after it drops 50 percent. And now all they can imagine is the central bank intervening and in us getting back to those all time highs. And then the market starts to roll over as the fundamentals deteriorate. So it's possible we're in the final stages, you know, of, of this super bubble starting to come apart. So. It's quite interesting, you know, watching we're seeing certain areas of the market. You've been talking about the popping and creaking that's taking place around the edges. You know, Japanese yen is still having issues, the Mexican peso. You've got major defaulting, according to unusual wells, on uh, uh, Chinese property dollar bonds. You know, their statements like 70 percent of those are in default right now. So uh, this is a time where where those who are prepared and those who are adaptable, you know, um, can put themselves in a position to protect themselves through what's coming in the months and years and days ahead. So interesting times, great times, fun times. This is what we're here for. This is what we're here to do and to navigate. Well, I'll tell you, there. I like interesting markets. I would prefer an interesting market than a boring market. A boring market doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it just sort of floats higher up and to the right, you know, and all that stuff. And then, And then you have to sift through these really annoying, probably just written by AI articles that try and explain to you why NVIDIA in the upper outer stratosphere can only go higher, right? And it's just, <laughs> I'm just like, 
yeah, as long as they can grow their their profits by fifty percent per quarter forever, you're right. It, it makes sense. <laughs> it's just like these dumb, <laughs> these really dumb rationalizations that I, I find insulting from time to time. But um, okay. can we turn now? I want to just um, very quickly turn to to this, which is uh, we'll call this GDP fictions and realities. Uh, can you see that? Yes, I can. All right. Well, this was the news. Jesse Cohen on um, Twitter writing, you know, hey, one U.S. economy great at an annual rate of four point nine percent during the third quarter, blowing past expectations for an increase of four point three, accelerating from growth of two point one in Q2. So this sounds great. I want to tear this apart a little bit because unfortunately, Paul, every single time I look into a government report, I don't care if it's a durables, retail sales, a CDC report on cases of the covid Every single time I peel back that cover one tiny layer and I go, oh, what a junk. What a oh, it's I wish we had. See, here's what I here's what I want. I want us to have statistics we can believe in. I believe that this is the equivalent, as we'll see, of flying an airplane where your altimeter's off by a few thousand feet. You know, yes, not a good, not a good idea. Right. So they say here, uh, number three, real consumer spending jumped at 4% year over year after increasing just 0.8% in Q2. So real, real consumer spending, of course, meaning it's been inflation adjusted. Um, and it says, despite fears of a looming downturn, U.S. economy continues to grow at above average pace as consumer spending remains resilient. Um, and their takeaway was, well, actually bad news for Federal Reserve Uh Fed might have to raise rates one more time, maybe, because things are just so hot, so good. And it was a Goldilocks number that we had, Paul, because why I looked like, oh, stock futures vaulted higher and gold and oil went down for some mysterious reason. Like, why would oil go down? Because the economy is getting stronger. That's bizarre. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, so this is this was the news here. I'm going to show you this is where I get all my stuff from. This comes from BEA.gov. Right. That's mm. that's the basic news. This is what it did. And again, mysteriously, not just U.S. stocks, which would be the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the DJIA, the S&P 500 up there, and the NASDAQ 100 in the lower right, um, but also the Nikkei, the Euro Stocks 50, the DAX, all of them super cheered. Everybody's <laughs> <And> excited. Happy. <laughs> Everybody's happy at the exact same moment because the U.S. economy expanded faster than expected. Anyway, I just put this up there because um, let me talk about this real quick. That chart I just showed you there, Paul, that's what concern I have. And I talk yeah. with a lot of people about it. And to speak, it, the reason I have a concern is because it says there's no diversification. This is one big market now. It's all the same market. It's it's a blob. And the reason that bothers me, Paul, is it means there's no diversification. This is like we, we, we just, our central bankers and the financial system in their infinite wisdom said, I know, let's build a big ship without any bulkheads. Right, right. You know, <laughs> you puncture the hull in one spot and the whole thing sinks, right? You know, that's, I, that's my concern about it. Well, that's a legitimate concern. I mean, you know, what's an investor to do? And it drives behavior is what it does. It, and and it, mm -hmm. to an extent, punishes you for putting the research in and spending time to to diversify your portfolio. So really, they, they're driving all your behavior to the big corporates. Hey, buy an index, you know, buy an index. Don't spend any time on your own doing the research. And the index are able to control the large money flows that come into the market. And they're absolutely price insensitive buyers. 
So, you know, to me as well, I, I sit back and laugh. The question that I'll ask now when you see the market jump that much is how long does it last? Right. How long does yeah, this right. how long does this last? Well, and if it if if that jump lasts for a long time, well, I, to me, that means there's plenty of liquidity in the system and the computers are happy, you know, playing pickleball with each other as they sort of like work their way through all that money. But when you see the pops last for just a little bit of time, like a week, a day or even just hours, to me, that tells me where we are in the story. And when you see them starting to last less than a day, mm -hmm. these pops. It means that the computers are no longer content to play pickleball. They are busy taking money off the table and they're happy for the pop because they can get stuff out the door at a better price, right? Um, that's right. That's what I'm seeing. This pop, that pop I just showed everybody here, Paul, mm -hmm. that, that, that rant, that took, that got burned up in about an hour um, this morning. It just it was gone went away. In a hurry. It was gone in a hurry. You know, it's interesting to watch the futures up every morning and then they turn around to climb the other way. Um, and, and really, it's the psychology behind the most dangerous thing for the individual investor that doesn't have a plan, who doesn't really understand what's taking place and doesn't stay patient. It sucks them into this market, right? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to miss this opportunity. And it pulls people in while the big institutions are able to dump money out on the individual investor and they're not the one holding the bag. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the average investor who doesn't really understand what's taking place in these markets. Yeah, I agree. And and it, and there's a degree of risk here that's also hidden. So let's just compare, say, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 30 large cap companies, nominally supposed to be industrials, but the composition's a little weird for that. Anyway, 30 biggest companies in the U.S. and the Nikkei 225, the largest 225 companies in Japan. And look at this behavior as we're coming down. This market's closed, by the way, at this point. Yes. So this is this is this is just futures trading while everybody's asleep. Nobody's buying or selling a single share in Japan, but the futures are still open. And so we see, you know, everything's sort of wobbling down and we're coming into the, you know, eight o'clock, 830, this announcement comes out and you see there was this initial pop down with this big volume spike and then it goes up and wobbles off in Japan, 12 time zones away. <laughs> right. Quick little pop, exact same volume pop. Exact same volume signature all the way across the bottom, exact same behavior. Everything's identical. So mm -hmm. the concern there is, well, does this work both ways? What if Japan's market suddenly gets in a huge amount of trouble for some reason? Does the lack of a bulkhead between these two markets mean that the Dow gets in trouble? Or is this just a one-way thing? Don't know, but I'm concerned because this behavior, Paul, this, what, this didn't used to do this when I first started learning about markets and trading. You know, back in the early 2000s, which is when I really started paying attention and futures really took off in in my awareness around 2005. Um, yes. I traded futures intensively 2005, six, seven. It became full contact sport. I was not enjoying my life, so I stopped, <laughs> but I did it actively. Yes. So I know what I'm talking about here. Um, yes. This didn't happen. You could you could I, I would I had hedging strategies, right? Where I might, yes. you know, be short this, you know, a simple hedging strategy might be short the dollar long gold or vice versa. Because if one moves one way, one tends to move the other way, right? Correct. There, there's no way to hedge across these markets now. No, there's, there's the no thing. Way. There's no pair trade when when they're all moving in the same manner. The question that I always ask myself is have, have the central banks, you know, we've seen massive combined intervention around the globe. 
It's like mm-hmm. they call each other up. We're going to make a move. Let's all do this together. So now are we seeing, which it appears that we are. Uh, I, I don't know how to, un- I can't understand why this phenomenon would occur so consistently unless you have mass global intervention because this super bubbles reached the point that they all understand if one goes down, everybody else gets pulled down. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. That that is the concern. And of course, you know, Timothy Geithner, you know, enshrined that in the systemically important banks, the SIBs too big to fail. Right. Um, And here we are. And so now I think it's a lot of BS and narrative control because they're afraid, you know, you know, when I was, um, if you looked into like, say, um, the Lahaina fires, right? You know, they they said flat out, straight up, the governor at one point said, we don't want to release the number of deaths because we think that will demoralize people, you know, really make people upset, right? It's this whole idea that if you're in an official position, even as lowly as a governor dealing with a tragedy that calls for transparency, your first instinct it now it, in the way that we run our, our, our governance is to say, well, we, we wouldn't, we couldn't think what would happen if people got access to the real truth. You know? right. We, we have to protect them. their pretty little heads from, from knowing what's really going on. And, and it just, I, I think lying is now so ingrained that it's reflexive Paul and that the only way to fix it would be to fire everybody at these, at the BLS or the BEA and start over with a whole new set of whole new set of people. <laughs> I agree because with the amount of lying that's taken place and the fact that they're not even ashamed of it, right? Like they're doing it for the headline numbers, realizing they're going to revise the data down. What now? 60 days. They don't even try to hide it. There's nobody there standing up for the truth. And the only way to replace that is to clean house. I, and, I totally agree. <laughs> and then there's others in there. I'm sure there are people in there that, that may not agree with it, but they need their jobs. And quite frankly, patriots are going to have to stand up for the truth and and trust that wherever that takes them is the path that is the most appropriate for our people, our country, and their own lives. So we've got a courage problem in a lot of those institutions now. Either that or they're just, just all corrupt. I mean, all that corrupt or a combination of both. Yeah. I agree. So, so let's, let's look at, um, I just, I just want people to understand that there's, you, you have, on my view, you have to understand the ways in which they're running these deceptions so that, so that you can develop a strategy and figure yes. out what you want to do about it. Right. And so what if they're wrong about how much GDP is out there? What if that's true? So is this showing up? Did I get that right again? It is. Yeah. So they say here the in- increase in real GDP compared to nominal real, of course, again, inflation adjusted. They say it reflected increases in consumer spending, private inventory investment, exports, state and local government spending, federal government spending and residential fixed investment. Uh, So that's what drove it a little a little offset by a decrease in non-residential fixed investment. Those are, of course, commercial buildings. They had to actually admit, well, maybe maybe they're not putting up quite as many office towers right now. Okay. But other than that, everything else was on fire, buddy. <laughs> yeah, the key there is state and local, uh, uh, state, local and government and federal spending. <laughs> I agree. Oh, exactly right. So look at this. They said current dollar GDP increased eight and a half percent annual rate or 50, $560 billion in the third quarter. So 
this is the third quarter calendar year is how they do this because the the government's fiscal year is on a different quarter system. So this is July, August, September, right? It's $560 billion. Okay. Well, to your point, let's go to the fiscal data from the from the Treasury Department and find out that from that's July down there in 7-3, right? So this is from July, August, and September. We see uh -huh. here that $846 billion in additional deficit spending happened <laughs> in, <laughs> in that quarter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Woo! We're number one. Get the foam finger out. We're number one, right? <laughs> Look how right. strong our... <laughs> and then they brag about how great things are. We're we're doing this fantastic job in the short run. And, and all I can think is, yes, you're destroying future generations for your own ability to brag here in the short run. I know it's such short termism. So so um uh let's see. So 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 let me see if did I put oh wait a minute, I might have to skip forward a couple. Um yeah, so no, not this one. Yeah, so look at look at this. They said they said the, teasing apart all this growth. So government consumption expenditures increased four point six percent year over year. Federal six point two percent was that's how much it added. Wait, it was a six point two percent growth. They said, which included defense at eight percent. Oh my gosh, I guess fighting wars is expensive. Who knew? Uh, non defense at three nine, state and local at three seven. Now now this is real. So the problem with this, Paul, is that you then have to subtract out the, the price increases. So so let's say the federal government spent 10% more, but they said, oh, but inflation was 10%. They would still log that as a 0% real contribution, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they spent a lot more, but, but what did they, let's look. So this part drove me nuts. Price indexes for this whole thing for 2023 is the yellow over here on this far side over here. Let me get my laser pointer out. This drives me nuts. Personal consumption expenditures, they said, had a 2.9% year-over-year increase. Now, if those had had a 3.9%, we would have seen a whole point shaved off of GDP. And if yes. it had been 4.9, we'd have seen two whole points shaved off. So do you think, in your experience, that you experienced a 2.9% year-over-year increase in goods and services? Absolutely not. It's closer to six or seven <laughs> percent. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Far higher than that. Yep. That's 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 what I think uh, as well. But isn't this fun? So the government adds it up and says, "Well, you as a private citizen, you experienced only two point nine in average." And this is some of all these numbers down here, right? And interestingly, they say durable goods. You actually got a four point four percent deflation in the cost of durable <laughs> goods. I'm like. You guys need to go car shopping, and you should have seen what my last washer and dryer cost. <laughs> That's what I was going to point out. How much more did you pay for the last water heater that you added, Chris? Those oh, my gosh. Lots more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots that, more. Yeah. Oy. That's so disappointing. I mean, it's not surprising at this point, but it's just ridiculously disappointing. And, and the concern that I have from a from a money management standpoint is, you know, how many of the institutions out there are just blindly trusting that the data that's coming out of the government is correct? And, and what investment decisions are they making based upon that? So, you know, 4.4% loss. We've actually been car shopping for my wife for about 12 months. 
We've not seen until the past week or two, we've seen a slight softening in prices just because inventories are starting to pile up again and, and they're not moving inventory, but prices have not declined dramatically enough to reflect a 4.4% reduction in durable goods. No, no, but here, here's the fun part. So while the government says, well, you, you, you private little citizen, you, you experienced 2.9% <laughs> inflation. So we're not going to subtract that much from your expenditures because that's awesome. But we want to make the government look better. So what if the government experienced, oh, look at down here, the government experienced 4.5% inflation. Hey, we're the government. Our stuff cost more. <laughs> so it looks like the government spent less than it did because they had to subtract that. So somehow the government is trying to claim that they experienced at the state, at the federal and state levels of about four and a half percent total inflation, but you <laughs> experienced something far less than that. This is just, this is, okay, this is, this is statistical vandalism right here. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. And I would say the government's choosing to, to pay a whole lot more just to try to do anything that they can do to, to push money into the economy from a fiscal stimulus standpoint. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, this this six point two percent would be even higher if if, uh, you know, they had the same two point nine percent inflation rate um, that, that we had because it would push it up by a, a percent. It's just a it's a it's a flop. You, you add a percent of inflation, you take a percent off your real expenditures and vice versa. Um, yes. Anyway, so so backing this up, though, remember, they said here, look, um, this this got me residential fixed investment actually added quite a bit to the overall uh pop residential fixed investment so i'm sitting here i'm like paul wait a minute i've read the other reports and maybe the other reports are wrong but i keep up with all this data and i remember this so this comes from the census department they said well okay permits permits from september 23 to september 22 down 7.2 percent how do you how do you spend more on housing, if you have 7.2% less permits, well, that's permits. That's permits. Maybe maybe we're completing them more. Right. Using housing units completed, September 23 to 22. Oh, huh. 4.8% decline year over year. That's weird. <laughs> that is weird. How, how, how are we spending more on residential fixed investment when we're not starting them and we're not finishing them? Uh, I, I, I that's don't a get good it. Question. And I don't see I don't see the home building stocks responding to that, you know, in any way whatsoever, that, that data. So I don't see it in price action either. Yeah. So so I, I see so them this declining whole thing, the downside, not a... this whole thing, right? So the consumer spending, I think, has not been appropriately adjusted for inflation. No, uh, I don't I don't I didn't dig into private inventory investment. I do believe state, local, and federal government spending is out of control. That's holding up the whole thing. If if they just didn't deficit spend at what's the federal government deficit spending at right now? Six and a half, maybe seven percent of GDP. Well, I if they wasn't doing that, GDP GDP would be back. It would be in, in in deep recession. So that's right. That's yeah. And this residential fixed investment, this is junk as well. Um, so so the whole thing's just junk, as far as I can tell. Uh and but yet people have to make decisions and trade off of it. But I, I, I do feel sorry for anybody. You can't make decisions off of this. Politicians can feel better, but I can't imagine a single corporate officer sitting down and going, this looks good, Paul. 
let's increase, let's hire people and increase our inventory levels. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the economy is doing great. <laughs> based off of this government data. Now, I, I can say the only number in there that I can say that I've, I've seen a little bit as far as the data comes out Inventories were drawn down as companies were a little bit more cautious, trying to absorb that those inflationary pressures last year. And they're having to replenish yep. those a little bit, but not enough to dramatically turn things around. So, you know, and, and Chris, this takes me back to the point where when when it's so obvious that you can't trust the data that's coming out of the government, that there's twists and, you know, to an extent, I I can't say there's outright lies, but if you're lying at all, I consider that an outright lie. If you're using statistics to change the numbers, you are lying. So we've talked, you know, we talked several times in the past about how interest rates have grown, risen so dramatically, even though the Fed is quoting that they're going to pause for a period of time, it looks like the market's saying no more. Well, here's a question I would ask you. At what rate would you feel comfortable buying a 10-year government treasury right now? 10 years. So this means that if I have to hold to maturity, it's going to be the year 2033. Yes. Personally, I'm a little bearish on what happens because because we know we know that by 2033, Social Security's bankrupt, uh, totally out of its trust fund. We know that the U.S. government has a structural deficit shortfall of at least two trillion dollars a year for that entire 10 year period, unless they change spending laws. Um, right. Uh, so probably around 12%. Okay. You know, it's interesting because that was the number I had in my mind as well, but we're seeing the 20 year since we talked last week is up to 5.27% right now. So that's, you know, we've seen a little bit of a backing off of the 10 year, but the 20 year is continuing to increase. Normally, if you can get paid inflation plus 3%, it makes sense to tie your money up for a 10 or a 20 year period of time. There is no way that I would do that right now. And and especially with this level of, of fiscal spending, 12% can compensate you. But does that number still make you a little nervous? A little bit. Especially with, with this fiscal spending and, and the Fed's ability to, you know, what if they reverse? What if they were to lower rates right now again? What if they were to, to reinstitute quantitative easing? I saw some news feeds this morning that there's some people that are getting pressed enough where they're like, hey, the government needs to come, the Fed needs to come back with QE again. I mean, that would absolutely destroy house prices. I think the number right now is to buy the average home in the U.S., you've got to have 114000 in income. What, what's it going to take? 180 and 200 if they if if they don't stay the course and pull this in, uh, asset price inflation out of the market which means, like Jeremy Grantham said, the final stages of the Super Bowl. And by that, the way I hear that, I've been tracking this bubble for a long time. This bubble goes back decades. Yes. Right? And and it's a bubble of complacency because the Fed's always going to bail us out. It's it's a bubble of magnificent proportions. that saw stocks and bonds both hitting all-time highs at the same time, right? So a lot of people say, oh, you know, they printed all that money. It didn't lead to inflation. Like that's because you're tracking milk and cars. <laughs> that's so no inflation's a monetary phenomenon. Inflation happens where the money goes. So the Fed printed, they didn't put it in milk in cars. They gave it to Wall Street. Well, what's Wall Street going to do with it? Ah, they buy Gulfstream 650s, fine gems, 
nice art, trophy properties, stocks and bonds. All of those went up extraordinarily during that period of time when they were printing all that money. So I submit we did have inflation. Lots of it. We did. We did. It was in the asset prices more so than the cost of living. But now it's coming into that cost of living, especially with the risk of the dollar status on the global reserve stage. Yes, it's a safe haven in the interim period. Yes, that milkshake theory. Um, and I cannot think of his name right now that put that out. Uh, Santiago Capital uh, was right. You're going to see the dollar rise initially. But, you know, we may be in a period of time where you've got who was it? I think it was Lenin, not not necessarily a fan, but he made a, a very wise statement. There are decades where where you know weeks happen and there are weeks where decades happen so i think that's correct i may have butchered that a little bit but i think we're in a period mm -hmm. of time where things can change so dramatically and quickly that unless you're prepared unless you have a strategy in place unless you have considered ahead of time the decisions that you need, need to make when certain thresholds are crossed it's going to be too late to do anything about it and, I totally agree. Got to have a plan and a buy list and a buy list <laughs> and a buy list. I, you know, I get asked, I get asked this question a lot. I, I, you know, and again, just for educational purposes, not investment advice, but, but I'm, I'm, I've got dry powder. I'm just sitting on it. I'm just, I'm waiting. I think there are better prices out there because I don't think the fed has the air political cover it needs given how bad inflation is because TikTok and Twitter is full of all these 20 something kids just crying literally, you know, about how they just can't get ahead. It's it's I think it would be very difficult for them politically here to cut and and start QE again. Mm -hmm. But they want to. We all know they want to, right? Oh, they want to. I think they I think they need a barn burner asset crash to 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 step in and, and have that agency. They need people crying on TikTok and Twitter saying, please, <laughs> please make this go up again. Right? <laughs> they do. They really do. They don't have that. If they want to do what's right for our future generations, then you're going to let housing price, you're going to stay here until housing prices come down 30 or 40, 50 percent. What that's going to do, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's what should happen. That's going to right. drive that's going to drive the institutions out of the residential housing market, which is going to get back to the point where the average individual is competing against the average individual to purchase a house not BlackRock coming in and buying up the whole community and taking everything off of uh, the market, BlackRock or Blackstone. So, you know, I do believe that this is a period of time we have been cautious on the market. We have, uh, you know, I think back in July, we're sitting on about 60, 65% treasury bills. And yeah, I have issues with treasury bills from a long-term standpoint, but if you're short-term in nature, technically that's the safest asset that you can own in the interim period. And it gives you dry powder. You have your precious metals, not a recommendation, just discussion for, for educational purposes. You have your precious metals from a long-term standpoint. That's like your fire insurance on your home. You have that there in case a catastrophic event happens. And then you operate a plan. You have to consider worst case scenario on any individual asset that's out there because if you are in a position when this super bubble bursts you're not going to be able to pick the bottom more than likely but you don't have to if prices were to drop let's say 40 percent or 50 percent which is what the market would have to drop just to get back to historical normal valuations maybe it goes it's down one of those big better. periods right 
That's right. It, it's like it's like we, the pendulum doth swing, right? And so there's a time where 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 it becomes all about paper. You know, mm-hmm. people get all fascinated with paper, speculation, and paper, and you know, it's it's stocks and which bonds and you know all that stuff. And then uh, right now, the hated side of that pendulum swing over here is commodities, right? You've seen the chart which shows the ratio of commodity prices to paper, right? Which is like say equities or something, right? Um, people get all fascinated with these and they hate these. And then the pendulum swings back and people get all fascinated with these and hate these. And, and that that's, but this is a generational moment of hatred for all things commodity related right now. It's, it's really strong. Um, and it'll swing back. It always does. Right. Um, and I'll know Paul, people like, well, would you ever sell your gold? I'm like, yeah, when I go to a party and everybody's telling me about gold and not, you you know, NVIDIA shares. Right. There'll be a moment. <laughs> Bingo. When they're like, will you please sell me some of your gold? I can't get any right now. And I'll swap my NVIDIA shares for it. If you'd be glad to take it, I'd be interested in swapping gold for NVIDIA, assuming that their, um, you know, fundamentals are still relatively decent. But you're correct. Most people chase the returns of uh, of what everybody's talking about on TikTok or or um, at the local party or get together. They're not buying what they need to buy because it takes patience. And that patience is what pays big dividends from a long-term standpoint. So you're right. You're right. So so this is important because, um, you know, people get very confused because the marketing is so good. But they think of the Federal Reserve as an, as an extension of the federal government. It's, it's they're there of and by and for the people. And Jay Powell will stand up there, as did, you know, Greenspan and Yellen and Bernanke and et cetera. And they'll say, oh, we have two mandates. We have dual mandate, full employment. Price stability, as if those were the things they actually cared about. Let's get let's cut to the let's cut to the chase. That's all BS. They don't care about that stuff. You know what the Federal Reserve cares about? It has a product called the Federal Reserve Note that is it manufactures out of thin air that commands extraordinary power. It will defend the dollar if necessary and burn everything else down. Careers, political careers, dynasties. Like it's it's like that's all it has the dollar it's like that's the only thing it doesn't have another product it's all it's no. got and by the way it's a fictitious product so you know they're going to want to keep that i think i think they are too why would they want to give up that power why i mean just just think about how many people are scrambling to get as close to the to the money printer as possible as close to those individuals and the power that that gives them and the the desire that that everybody generates to have a relationship with them that's something that that feeds our human nature our weakness and our emotions they're not going to give that up easily there's no way there's no way i agree yeah. very good statement i hadn't thought about it like that until you made that statement but that i believe that's a wise and true statement chris well well thanks and, and here's i was going somewhere with it too which is that i think we, we have a central bank that is now facing that choice and it's going to have to deal with it first. So, so let's turn back now real quick to my old buddies, the Japanese, um, <laughs> cause, uh, let's go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, uh, everybody needs to really needs to know about this. So it, it probably means nothing to somebody who doesn't track it, but the Japanese yen, now it, you need 150 of them to buy a single us dollar. And, and, and so that ratio of 150, they've been fought, Paul, they've been fighting, not going through that level for months now. I mean, yes. really fighting. And, and it's important for people to understand that the, that Jap, Japan 
is a value-add nation. They import all the raw materials, practically, and all of their energy, practically. Uh -huh. And they fashion that into higher value-add products, right? Cars, semiconductors do a great job. The issue is that is the is the is the yen falls and goes from 100, 100 to the dollar to 120 to 130, 40, 50. It that's inflation is they're importing inflation now. There's no way to avoid that, right? Correct. So big deal. They have to fight that. But the Japanese central bank, and this is I have nothing but contempt for them. Like I do a lot of central bankers and contempt is not too strong a word. They've been just trying to, they just wanted to, they wanted to control both the price and the quantity of money. You know, they were doing it called yield curve control where they were just going to control the cost of money. Right. Which is yes. fundamentally, you know, yeah. Uh, but they also didn't want their yen to get out of control. So they wanted to, the, both the price, which is the interest rate and the quantity. They, they wanted both of those fixed. Like you can't do that. So they no. did it. And it built up a lot of pressure. <laughs> and now this pressure's popping. So a little context. Yes. So this is, you know, I don't know what's with this flat line, but but when when the, the yen starts showing up as a as a dollar pair back here in the early 70s, you can see it was about 300 and came down and comes down and comes down. So this is the 150 mark right here, which it's now popped back over. And so I think you can see that there's nothing but air up here. I mean, the next stop would be 175 ish. Mm -hmm. And then the next stop would be 225 ish, give or take. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's nothing but big fat round numbers up here. So that's that's the price that that that's, you know, what their money is worth. And then the price of it. Ooh, you know, they were really serious. They were going to keep their 10 year bond below 0.5 percent. And they did all the way up until August. And then it's getting away from them pretty profoundly here. Very quickly. Um, but I know it doesn't, doesn't look like a lot, but but that's a big amount, actually, to go from here to here on percentage terms. That's a substantial amount. That's actually a 76% increase from 0.5 to 0.885. Wow. That, that, that has big impacts. But even with that, even with that, if you said, well, I'm going to get compensated for 0.88% over 10 years, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to be compensated in a currency that's going to be shedding maybe whole percentages per month <laughs> in <Yes>. value. <laughs> it just doesn't work out. So, so that's the huge tension. Like who's going to be buying all the bonds? Well, that's the Bank of Japan. What do they, well, when they buy it, what do they do? Well, they have to print money out of thin air. Wait a minute. You're creating more money. Now the price of your money's fallen. That's right. Well, so that's that's what they're stuck in this rock in a hard place. But I think the reason I want to intro it the way I did, push comes to shove, the Bank of Japan really only has one product, and that's the yen. Yes. All the rest is things they're trying to do to satisfy various market participants and political careers. But at the end of the day, cornered, they'll defend the yen if they have to. Absolutely. If they can, they will. And, and and think about the decades of this yen carry trade, the substantial amounts of money that are that are in that carry trade. And when that unwinds, it, it's it's impossible. I'm sure there's somebody can figure it out, but it's impossible to to fully consider the ripple effects and just how much damage that's going to do across the markets globally and especially mm -hmm. in the U.S. Well, if there's no bulkheads in the ship. Right. Um, That's right. 
you know, then what happens? So so when you really get in trouble is, is a nation state. So everybody has open capital borders. And that's why we see all the charts trading identical. So when you when you do get in trouble, though, and you're like, oh, no, gosh, you know, our yen is under assault. What do we do? Um, really, there's not much you can do. You can either close the border, which means that's impossible. But if you did try and do that, boy, you trap a lot of people. Panic ensues. Billions and billions of dollars that suddenly don't want to be locked in that system, you know, chaotically try to get out. So so really imposing capital controls is probably like the most nuclear of options. Right. That's the big red button. Like, uh oh, otherwise mm. you have to do what everybody else does, which is you have to raise interest rates enough to attract attention that people would come and want your currency again, you know, because okay. it's attractive. I like your bond. I'm going to have to buy it. I guess I'll have to buy some yen to buy your bond. Right. Um, so. So I don't know what interest rate Japan would have to raise up to, but they would have to become at least globally competitive. Yes. It be like, you know, at least, and I would submit more when you're under, when your currency's under assault, you have to go further. So 8%, 9%. Well, the Japanese government, the last thing I saw said that if their interest cost that they have to pay rises to 2%, they have to spend a hundred percent of all their tax receipts just on interest costs. Goodness. Goodness. They can't even afford 2% as a, as a nation. That was last time I read about is that it's probably lower than that. Now, all things considered. So, so that's what they're really facing here. So the bank of Japan is like, do I defend the currency or if interest rates rise? Cause that's how I defend it. But if those rise far enough, my whole government goes into one of those meltdown things. Yes where it's borrowing to satisfy the cost of borrowing, which leads to more borrowing, which raises the cost of borrowing. Is that thing? Which is a currency collapse event. Yep. So that's that's my dark horse. I, I wouldn't even call it a black swan because that's totally unexpected. This is kind of a dirty white <laughs> swan. <laughs> You're right. It's like lightly gray. <laughs> you can see the color changing before your eyes, right? Yes. Yep. You know it's coming. So... Well, but but again, and, and it didn't have to be this way, because if the central bank of Japan like and, and I'm not to pick on them entirely because all the central banks in the West did the same dumb stuff. Yes. But if they had just not gotten in the business of saying we have to try and control all these things and we're right. simply the lender of last resort and let the market do what it needs to do from time to time, which is burn some companies down who made dumb decisions to let that creative destruction of Schumpeter sweep across not allow enough tinder to build up in the system that you are facing a systemic lights out event you know if it does catch on fire right but but they didn't they just kept intervening and intervening and intervening and i'm sure it all made sense and careers were built and but here we are and this is i think we're you know decades are about to happen <laughs> in weeks decades decades are about to happen and, uh, you know, and, and that's why it's so important to be careful, cautious right now, have some exposure to certain categories. I will say our tools from a relative strength perspective, commodities have moved into kind of the number one target. Now, we're not going heavily into them right now, because if we do get that flush, you know, the market's mm -hmm. been anticipating this year in rally. I mean, at, at this point, it seems like the media is going year in rally, year in rally, year in rally. And yes, we're at the point from a technical perspective where that can happen. Everybody's running this image around of the 1999 analog and, 
And there's a lot of money managers out there that are thinking, hey, this is going to save my year, right? Because you basically have the S&P 7 this year. You've got seven stocks that account for the majority of the market returns. The other 493 are basically zero for the year. So the And we've started to see just in the past couple of days, good news come out of their earnings, but Google cratered. Meta started to crater. So if those generals start to collapse, this can get out of control really quickly. And mm -hmm. if you start to see some loss of the, you know, the yen continues to, to have this uh, ascent, these issues that are taking place, it could get out of control in a hurry. And if you haven't made the decision ahead of time that I'm going to choose to be patient, yes, I might leave a little bit of money on the table, but that's okay because we've got a lot of popping and creaking around the edges. You, you may not be in a position to take advantage of the opportunities that are going to be out there. And again, I've shared with you my concern. We're going to have this 50, 40, 50, 60 percent decline. And then what are they going to do? OK, then what are they going to do? Are they going to let that happen? And it's going to be 15, 20 years before the markets get back to even. That's not outside the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. Or are they going to go? what worked in the past. Oh, we printed all this money. Look what we did during COVID. And we were able to turn things around, you know, and then all of a sudden they slam rates to zero and print. And then that's the straw that breaks the currency back and all fiat currencies start coming apart. And, and we're awash with this ridiculous hyperinflation where there's few places to hide, but there are great places for the investor that's been in a position to take advantage of it. You know, international countries that are commodity based, those indexes, commodities in general, gold, silver specifically. I can't make the recommendation on cryptos, but they're showing some signs of strength here here recently in the short mm -hmm. run. But if you're adaptive and you're open minded and willing to follow a strategy, something that can help you choose the right path when you come to these wise in the road, you're going to be successful. You're going to be OK. You're going to be better than the average person. We're all going to be miserable if we have hyperinflation, but those who prepare are going to be better off. They're not going to lose as much ground as what the average person is. It's very well said. And, and um, for those listening, if you if you're just seeing this out in the wild and you haven't been to peak prosperity, you might want to come by because this uh, Paul's touching on some important framing, as I call it, that that's really important. And and this fr the framing is this. So um it, from 1918 to 1923, you had this the the German Weimar hyperinflation, right? Everybody's seen the pictures of people with wheelbarrows feeding bricks of currency into furnaces because that's the best use for them. Um, and if, when you read sort of retail level books, like I go to Amazon and want to read about it, they talk they're like, oh, this was a great wealth destruction that happened. Look at how many people lost their savings and they lost homes. It's, they just present it like as this mysterious thing, like a meteor came and smashed everybody's wealth and it just went away, right? Yeah. And it's actually the wrong framing. What happened was nothing happened to the wealth in the country, right? There were just as many real wealth comes from the buildings, the farms, the factories, the roads, the bridges. That Nothing changed. That was all still there before and after. But who owned it? Now, that did change. So it was not a wealth destruction. It was a wealth transfer. And I understand why the keepers of the system want to pretend like it's, ah, oh, so sorry for your loss, you know, care to play again? <laughs> when in fact, for people who are paying attention, you understand that, that you know, there's ways in which you can 
keep your powder dry, be smart, be nimble, so that as that wealth transfer is unfolding, you are on the right side of the line. And I wish everybody could be on the right side of that line, but history says a lot of people won't pay attention. They won't care. They, um, they, they won't allow themselves to think that way. But there are people who can see it that way. So I, that's what I want to have people understand is inflation is not some random act of the mysterious universe. <laughs> it's a policy and the policy benefits some and it punishes most everybody else. And once you understand that, you have a chance of tipping the odds in your favor. Correct. Well said, Chris. Well said. And that's what you do such a phenomenal job of educating people, opening their eyes, helping them to understand what's really going on. And then helping them to see that there are ways that you can deal with this. You're going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to get courageous. You're going to have to work with people that that care about each other, community, and this country. Mm-hmm. And those are the individuals that that you're doing a good job educating so that they can receive some of that wealth transfer. So it puts them in a position to where hopefully they can help lead some of the policy decisions locally, specifically on a state level and ideally on a national level on the other side of this. Agreed. Agreed. So for everybody listening, um, I'm Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity. This is Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. If you want to have a free consultation with Paul, no obligation, and you, I'm sure you do. Uh, you would just you can get a hold of him through our website, which is at peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very easy form to fill out, and an email gets kicked out to Paul's team. They will get in touch with you. It's a very easy process, and based on the feedback I'm getting, a very enjoyable process. Thank you, Chris. We've enjoyed meeting everybody. Most importantly, helping people understand how to to plan and deal with what could be potentially around the corner. Well, fantastic. Good service there. So thanks much. Um, Hey, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week, I hope. And uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully a whole decade hasn't passed by that time. I hope not. I hope not. (laughs) Thank you, Chris, for what you do. All right. Likewise. See you next time, Paul. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year.
So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.